Welcome to Plodcast, episode 72. Great to have you with me. Thanks for inviting me along. So, I, I was thinking about uh, global warming this morning, and um, and not so much about the the fact of it, or uh, because there is no fact of it, or the the debate over climate change or the debate over global warming. Um, the thing that that I was thinking about is it uh, the the religious nature of the climate change presupposition. What do I mean by uh, religious nature? Uh, for liberals, for progressives, um, climate change is an eschatological reality. Um, it's and and this is why failed predictions don't matter. Failed predictions don't matter. If I can use the um, illustration of the second coming of Christ in certain prophetic, in certain wings of um, the Christian church, uh, there were the Millerites in the 1800s where there was a big second coming scare and a bunch of people went out, you know, uh, waiting for the, it's like Linus waiting for the great pumpkin. Um, they go out to greet the second coming and nothing happens. And then there was a quick recalculation. This was the first half of the 19th century. It'd be the following night. And then I think that's what happened. The, the recalculation didn't materialize either. And uh, people have been doing this in Christian circles uh, for 200 years, coming up on 200 years. And it, it continues to work. So, um, uh, and sometimes it works at, uh, at a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, level. So in Hal Lindsey's uh, book, The Late Great Planet Earth, uh, he says, for example, uh, Israel was formed as a nation uh, in 1948 with the Balfour Declaration. Uh, that caused the prophetic clock to start ticking again. Uh, this generation will not pass away. So the generation that sees the prophetic clock jump started again will not pass away till all these things are fulfilled that means the second coming had to happen by 1988 a, a biblical generation being 40 years so 1988 came and went and nothing happened um, I remember another book a guy a, a guy with a different math approach um, we got a I was in a volunteer help in a Christian bookstore at that time, and we got this book that pegged the second coming as being in 1978. I think it was 1978, and it was I think it was in September of 78. And when we got the book, we had a debate among the staff as to whether we had time enough to get the book back to the publisher and get credit for it before the Lord came again. Well, the the Lord the Lord's coming is something that gets people whipped up over and over and over and over again. And that is because it is a certain kind of religious conviction. It's a certain kind of religious religious conviction. So when someone makes that kind of prediction, they are not trying to get the person to wait until three weeks from today uh, when the prediction uh, is supposed to be fulfilled and then mark it on the calendar and go out and see. And if it didn't happen, then it failed. 
No, the goal, the goal of this kind of prediction is not the fulfillment. The goal of this kind of prediction, this particular peculiar kind of religious prediction, is the thrill or the exhilaration that it gives you uh, at the moment when the prediction is made. So um, when, when a prophet in the, in the biblical sense um, uh, gave the prediction, the awe is reserved for the moment of fulfillment. So when, when Simeon sees the fulfillment of all the promises and says, now let thy servant depart in peace, or when Anna the prophetess sees the fulfillment of the, of the promises, they are thinking biblically because they are oriented to the fulfillment. Um, there's a certain kind of religious buzz that comes from simply making the prediction. And predictions of climate change uh, are exactly of the, exactly that nature. They're very lurid, um, lurid predictions. The polar bears are all going to die. Uh, we're all going to die. I read one one writer put it. Uh, you know, water's going to be lapping around our ankles up here in Denver. Um, that kind of lurid prediction, and the buzz, the excitement, the adrenaline rush comes from the moment of predicting, not from the moment of fulfillment. You could, if you made a, it would be a very easy task to gather, gather up all the failed predictions about uh, environment, environmental disaster, environment, an environmental apocalypse. Whether it's Al Gore, according to Al Gore's, uh, um, inconvenient truth. Shouldn't we all be dead by now? Huh? According to Paul Ehrlich's population bomb, shouldn't we all be dead by now? Um, and yet these people continue on. They continue to be able to draw an audience. They're, they haven't been run out of town. And the reason they haven't been run out of town is they continue to deliver. But that delivery doesn't have to do with fulfillment. If you think a prophecy needs a fulfillment, you're thinking old school, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Elijah. You're, you're thinking biblically. Um, false prophets don't need to have their prophecies come true. Let me say this again. False prophets and climate change alarmists are, are, nothing, are nothing if not false prophets. False prophets depend for their success not on the fulfillment of their promise, but on the thrill they deliver in pronouncing the doom. So all the excitement is at the front end. All the excitement is at the front end. Uh, in biblical prophecy, the excitement is back end. So Jesus is walking with his disciples in Jerusalem. They're rubbernecking, looking at the temple and the complex. And Jesus says, do you see all this? Not one stone's going to be left on another. And, uh, and they say, when? And he sits down with him, and he just walks, walks through this with him. And all the, the thunder, lightning, and blue ruin, that all happened in 70 AD at the fulfillment. In a biblical prophecy, the excitement is at the fulfillment. In a false, a false prophet, all the excitement is you, right there at the front end. You get it now. So my uh, epi 
episode 72 of our podcast. Um, here's the book review sec- section. W- what I wanted to do is um, uh, commend to you uh, the works of the early Rush Dooney. Um, I've, and I've got one book in particular. I just had occasion to pull it down and look something up in it and was reminded yet again of how indebted I, uh, I am to uh, Rush Dooney's social analysis. This book is called The Foundations of Social Order, The Foundations of Social Order. And what Rush Dooney is doing in this book is showing the connection between the orthodox decisions made by the early church at places like Nicaea and Chalcedon and the subsequent um, political, theological history of the West. So what Rushduni uh, does is he, he shows that these um, debates, the Trinitarian debates, the debates over the human and the divine natures of Christ, hammering out uh, the church's resistance uh, to uh, heretical understandings of the relationship of the divine and human. What Rushduni does is he shows how important they are. Now, I've, I've commended, I'll, I'll just divide it in, into uh, this in two. Uh, Rushduni uh, read voluminously, and he wrote, uh, a, he wrote a lot of books. And I have found, uh, you know, a number of his later books are, are fine. Uh, I, don't have, I don't have a huge objection, but uh, the early books are really, um, just really incisive. Uh, books like The Messianic Character of American Education or uh, Intellectual Schizophrenia or uh, Foundations of Social Order or The Nature of the American System. Um, he puts he puts a needle on, on the on the exact issue. Why why is the debate between um, the various factions at Chalcedon an important debate for us today? Well, theologian Peter Jones um, summarizes. I think the the two basic um, approaches to life are oneism and twoism. Uh, the pagan approach is oneism. All of reality is one thing, and the Christian approach is twoism. There is God, and there is not God. There is that which has a real existence that is not God, but that existence is contingent and dependent upon the will of God. God's existence is necessary and dependent upon no external person or thing uh, at all. So, in the beginning, God said, let there be not God. And there was not God. And God said, behold, it's very good that not God is there. So creation has value, but it's distinct and separated from God. Every pagan system tries to smudge or blur the boundary between God and not God. And what Chalcedon does is when uh, when God takes on human flesh, which is we're in the Christmas season now as I record this, as we, as we approach the celebration of the incarnation of the Son of God, even in the incarnation, uh, the, the fathers at Chalcedon were extraordinarily careful to say that the two natures, the divine nature of Jesus and the human nature of Jesus, cannot be separated. 
They cannot be confounded. They cannot be smudged together. They cannot be mingled. They cannot be mixed up. They cannot be confused. And yet they are brought together in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, uh, and thus it is, as, as Rushduni says, uh, Chalcedon-handed statism, its most significant defeat in the history of Western civilization. And I think that that assessment is true. So, podcast episode 72, Hamartiology. The Apostle Paul wishes, and, and it's in a moment of some ferocity, that the false teachers at Galatia, who were so zealous for circumcision, would stop messing around with their half measures and cut the whole thing off. That's what he, that's what he says, in effect, in Galatians 5.12. Now, the reason that he had for doing this, the reason he had for saying this or desiring this, is that these false teachers were troubling, and is Amastao, the church there, they were troubling the, I said Amas, it's Anas, Anastatao, the church there. Judging from the two other uses of this word in the New Testament, the turmoil that these false brothers created at Galatia was a considerable uh, kind of turmoil. The same word is used to accuse the Christians of turning the world upside down, that's in Acts 17.6. So when, when Christians were um, charged with um, troubling the Greco-Roman Empire, they were, they were accused of a cosmic upheaval. They, they were accused of turning uh, the world upside down. The other time it's used is by the Roman officer when he was speaking about the Egyptian who led 4,000 men into a revolutionary uprising, into a tumult, into an uproar. That's in Acts 21, 38. The tumult at Galatia, therefore, was the work of uh, professional troublemakers. These, these people really were causing a big problem. If their disruption of Galatia, if their disruption of the Galatian church was like uh, the disruption of the Christians in the ancient pagan world or the uh, disruption caused by the Egyptian who led an armed uprising of 4,000 men. Well, their disruption was considerable. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.